If you're like, what does it mean? We don't know either. <laughs> they seem to have a lot of fun doing them together, but uh, beyond that, we're just, yeah. So, um, there you go. <laughs> hey, we're doing a series, uh, as Jake alluded to, called At the Movies. And it just came with the idea that we know from basically Memorial Day through Labor Day, it's a travel time for many people. And uh, even if you're not traveling um, out of the state or out of the city, a lot of people have something going on during the summer, reunions and activities with kids and maybe day trips. And so we just thought, what, what, what can we do that helps our people during that, um, that season right there learn the best? How do we keep them uh, in community? How do we keep them where we're, okay, we know what's going on, um, even though we might be missing some weekends. So when we put things together on the weekend, we do like the Kona ice truck, or we'll do a barbecue all during the summer. It's all things designed that if you came on that particular weekend, it's a chance to reconnect. But with the messages too, the idea was if we do a traditional series, they build on each other. Week one uh, is necessary for week two, and two for three, and on and on. But if we do a series where each one can kind of stand by themselves, and if you miss a couple of weeks, you don't feel like, well, I'll just wait until this series is over to jump back in. You can come in on any of these messages, and they kind of stand by themselves. So we picked the idea that in the summer, they do all the blockbusters are released. What if we just played off of that theme? Now, we're not l watching movies or looking for a movie to give us what the message is going to be about. We're writing the message, and then we're looking for a movie to help illustrate a point. And this weekend, I'm going to talk about the gift of mercy. And in particular, I'm going to talk about... Uh, forgiving. We've been forgiven so that we can forgive other people. It is the context and the lifeblood and the whole hope of the gospel that we're forgiven so that we can forgive. We're people of mercy. And the, probably the greatest uh, proof that we get mercy, listen, is that we can give mercy to someone else. Does that make sense? If you don't get mercy, if you're not receiving mercy, you, you don't have a definition for it. So it's so hard to give to someone else. So this message is really, it's the crux of our gospel, the crux of what we believe. It's the, the lifeblood of what we do. So that's what the nature of the message is about today. I chose the movie Unbroken. It's the true life story of a guy named Louis Zamperini. You might have seen it. Uh, Angelina Jolie was the producer of it, uh, and I think the director a few years ago. And he was an individual who ran in the Olympics in the 30s. He went into World War II, and the guy had a run of bad luck like you cannot believe. He was a gunner on a bomber. Uh, the bomber was shot over uh, Japan, one of the islands. As he was trying to return to his home base, it crashed in the water. He managed to survive uh, shark attacks, uh, got into a raft, drifted for two months, basically. And then as a ship came to rescue them, it was a Japanese warship that plucked them out of the Pacific and put him into a POW camp. Uh, where he had to learn how to survive uh, the POW camp. And what made it even more difficult for him was that when he ran the Olympics, there was a Japanese person that he beat who was now the, um, the, the, 
the commandant. What do, you, what do you call a Japanese? The boss. The boss of the prison camp was the guy that Louis beat in the Olympics. And so the guy had it in for Louis, wanted to, uh, to destroy him. And so the entire movie is about how he survived. It's a powerful story of, um, of the human will to live. But here's where Hollywood missed it. Um, Louis, after he survives all of that, goes back home to the States, California, and he has terrible PTSD for a number of years. And he begins to drink and abuse his wife and abuse his family. And at a Billy Graham crusade, he comes to Christ and it changes his life. And the rest of his life was lived to tell people about Jesus. So the movie focused on him surviving uh, the terrible odds of that part of his life. But Louis himself said they missed the most important part. And it was the part where I found Jesus and Jesus changed everything. And there's actually, just in case you'd ever be interested, if you saw part one, Universal Studios did do a part two, but it didn't get released uh, to the mainstream in theaters. It went to video. But part two is about his life afterwards when he finds Jesus and how he lived his life. And it's really, really uh, powerful. The little clip that I picked right here is this. When he was a child, before uh, the Olympics, before World War II, before he went through all of the stuff that was so difficult to overcome, uh, Louis' mom and dad would make him go to church. And there was a message that he heard as a boy on forgiveness. And they included it in the original movie because it had a bearing on him early on hearing God talk about uh, he's been forgiven and he needs to forgive. And I think it played a part in in the rest of his life. So just watch this little clip and then I'll, I'll come back. Might also is mine. He sent his son Jesus not to do battle, not to wage war on the sins of man, but to forgive them, forgive the sin, smile on the sinner, accept the darkness, Live through the night. Love thine enemy. The movie kind of telegraphs the idea that Louis hears that message and then the rest of his life is practiced in trying to live that right there. And if you haven't seen it, I totally would encourage you to see that movie. If you have a pen or a pencil, we'll jump right into this. And... Uh, um, talk a little bit about um, mercy and forgiveness. And then at the end of it, um, I'll reference a song in this, and we'll actually sing that song at the end. And if there's anything that you feel like before God that you need to deal with, I hope you'll take the opportunity. So the first fill in the blank there is just simply the gift of mercy. All through the Bible, it talks about God's mercy towards us, both Old and New Testament. Jesus is the personification of God's heart on the earth. And so much of what Jesus taught has to do with how God feels about us. And in particular, God's love for us, his mercy towards us, and his offering forgiveness. But Jesus always puts it in the context that if you're forgiven, there's a responsibility then to forgive others. And so many times when we think of the message of forgiveness, it's only that first side that God has forgiven me and we forget the responsibility that we have to forgive other people. So Jesus, whenever he taught about forgiveness, always included both sides. You've been forgiven, so you need to forgive. And then Jesus could get really tough with the words by saying things like this. If you don't forgive, God won't forgive you. 
And so many times when we talk about forgiveness, we'll concentrate on that first part because that second part is hard for us to understand. We can't think uh, of God treating us in a way uh, of, of not forgiving us and, and, and being harsh to us. But here's what I think it is. When Jesus taught, uh, as you judge, so you will be judged, I think that's what mercy and forgiveness is. As we receive it, we can give it. And if we don't receive it, then we're unable to give it. And if we can't give it, then it means we're not receiving it from God. So with that in mind, let me read you one of the stories that Jesus taught about forgiveness. Peter came to Jesus and asked him, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother who sins against me? Now, real quickly, look at the context. He's not saying, how many times shall I forgive different people? He says, how many times shall I forgive the same person who continues to sin against me? That usually is where the rub comes in, isn't it? If it's just someone every once in a while that does something, we generally can have mercy. But if the same person does the same thing over and over and over again, have you ever said this? I will forgive, but I will not forget. Is that biblical? That's tough. I'll just be honest with you. I know it's tough. But you hear that little cliche all the time, and it's not biblical. I will forgive, but I won't forget. What we're saying is, hey, fool me once, shame on me. Uh, Fool me twice. I'm sorry, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I'll never let you do this to me twice. But here, you've got Peter coming to Jesus saying, if this person does this to me over and over, how many times am I obligated to forgive? And I think Peter probably picks, like maybe he was thinking, hey, if I say three, that's not enough. Uh, If I double it and go to six, that's better. What if I add one more? Seven. Seven's got to be the perfect number of God. So I'll go to Jesus with the number seven. So Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive the same person who sins against me up to seven times? And I bet he thinks he's being generous. I bet he really thinks, hey, Jesus is going to like this. And Jesus just turns it all upside down. Jesus answered, I tell you, not just seven times, but 77 times. Some translations say 70 times seven. If you take it to the max and go, okay, so Jesus is saying we need to forgive a person 490 times every day. That's not the point either. He's using a colloquy, which simply means no matter how many times someone asks you to forgive, that's how many times you're obligated to forgive them. How do you put that in a context? It would be the context that you have with God. Do you only want God to forgive you seven times? Do you only want him to forgive you 70 times? You want God to forgive you every time you ask, yes or no? And what happens to us so often is that at that point of conversion, we recognize, oh, I need God's grace, and I need his mercy, and I need his love, and we experience it. But if we don't live in a place day after day where we're still being touched by God's grace and mercy, our hearts can become hardened to what God did for us back over there, and we're not living in a state of compassion where God's touching us currently. And we get away from the experience of his grace back over here and our hearts get somewhat hardened. So then we deal with the idea, well, how many times do I have to forgive somebody? And you forget that your need is the same need you had when you got born again the first. You didn't get born again and then you don't need Jesus. You need Jesus every day of your life. Not just the day you became a believer. You need him every day. And so the relationship that Christ is trying to teach us is as you stay in this place of recognizing your need before God, you need his mercy every day, all the time. You're you're not getting to the point where you're not going to need it. You still need it every day. And if you're living in that place, then understand people also need grace just like you need grace and mercy. And so because you've experienced it, you're supposed to give it. Go back to that, uh, that first scripture. 
So Jesus answered, I tell you, not just seven times, but 77 times. It's a colloquy. As many times as you're asked to forgive, you forgive. Now go to the next one. Because of this fact that you need grace, that, you, that you're required to forgive, if you're receiving forgiveness, you're required to forgive. Because of this fact, the kingdom of heaven is like a king. He tells a story to equate the two and put them together. The kingdom of heaven is like a king, and that's himself who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlements, a debtor was brought to him owing 10,000 talents. Don't go to the next one real quick. All right, so Jesus is talking to a people group that lived 2,000 years ago. He's using a denomination that would have been familiar to them. But when we read it, we have no context for how much is 10,000 talents. And you're missing something so incredibly important. Jesus is trying to stress this person that the king forgave owed far more than he could ever repay. So 10,000 talents, how much is that? Listen to this right here. This is just, I, I, just taking some time to study this. Uh, everybody had a different opinion. All, all, all the different concordances had a different opinion on exactly how much a talent was, but they were all relatively close enough. So he, here's the conservative one that I, that I picked out. One talent, not 10,000, one talent was 20 years wages. One talent. And this guy owes how many? So it's 10,000 times 20 years. Here's the point. He'll never be able to repay it. There is no Israeli lottery. I thought it was a better joke than what you just, you just gave me. But we'll move on from there. Bottom line is what Jesus is trying to stress and get across to his hearers is that he, he'll never be able to repay this amount of money. He's got himself in a position of debt that he can't climb out of. No budget, no blessing, no help is going to get him out of this position that he's in. In fact, the only thing that's going to help him is mercy, yes or no. That's it. And that's what Jesus is trying to stress. So, so a debtor was brought into him owing 10,000 talents, and this is what happens. Since the man was unable to pay, the master ordered that he be sold to pay his debt along with his wife and his children and everything that he owned. Then the servant fell on his knees before the king, and this is what he says, have patience with me. He begged the king, I will pay back everything, knowing that it's going to be impossible. So he, he really is, he's begging for something that's impossible. What he needs is, please have mercy on me. His master had three things, compassion on him, forgiveness for his debt, and released him back into society. Real quickly, compassion, forgiveness, and release. This is important because if you don't understand the context, you miss what Jesus is trying to say. We use these terms a lot in Christianity. We use the term grace, we use the term mercy, and we use the term restoration. If you want an understanding for those three things, it's found right here. Compassion is grace. When we ask God for his grace, we're asking him to be compassionate with us, aren't we? God, I need grace right now. God, I'm in trouble. God, I can't fix this. God, I'm in deeper than I can get myself out. I need your grace. You can make all the deals you want with God, but sometimes we recognize no matter what I do, I can't get myself out of the situation I'm in. Look at me real quick. That's what sin is. 
the sin that is on your life that you're born with, the thing that separated you from God, no matter how much you say, I'm sorry, I'm going to fix it, you can't pay for it. The Bible says the wages of sin is, but the gift of God is life, eternal life. Grace is realizing, listen to me, it's having your eyes open to the fact you owe more than you can ever pay. And it's not just material debt, it's spiritual debt. You are not just sick, you're not just under, you're not just down, you're dead spiritually and there's no way to come back to life unless God has mercy on your soul. That's what it is. So when you want a, a determination for what, what does grace and mercy and, and restoration mean, Jesus is putting it in this right here. Compassion is grace. Forgive, he forgave his debt. Forgiveness would simply be the word mercy. Mercy is different than grace in that grace is God having compassion, but mercy is God doing something about what he feels for us. Jesus is God's mercy in action. God is, he's, he's compassionate towards you and he loves you and he wants to restore you, but he also is a God who is honest and just and your sin cannot be winked at by God or kind of like, well, I know it's not. Your sin cost Jesus his life. And we tend to think of our sin as not as bad as the guy who committed murder or the guy who committed our sin or, or, or the guy who betrayed this. But the truth of the matter is God is perfect and he is holy. And so your sin, when it comes to what put Jesus on the cross, it wasn't just the murderer that put Jesus on the cross. It was gossip that put Jesus on the cross. It was lying that put Jesus on the cross. It, 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 was, it was all the things that happened that separate us from God. And when God looks at it, his standard is perfection. So it's not just the worst of the worst that we count as bad sin. All sin put Jesus on the cross. Look at me. Your sin put Jesus on the cross. And we can get so prideful and think, well, how can you say that to me? If you don't recognize your spiritual need before God, you've lost the meaning of the gospel. You're not just wounded and sick. Dude, you're dead without Jesus. And you need to be raised back to life. And so when we say to God, man, have compassion on me, great. God looks at us and has compassion, but his mercy is what moved him to send his son to take our place. And then the best part of this story right here, look at this. Let me show you this. So his master had compassion on him, forgave his debt. This word right here, and, say it with me, and released him. Look at me. Listen to this. When we say things like, I will forgive, but I won't forget, that's not what God did for you. Listen to me for just a second. This guy, Jesus uses the analogy that he owes so much money he could never repay. He uses a figure that the mind can't really, you know, get itself around. It's so big you can't get around how much is owed. And so when we say things like, okay, I will forgive you, but I won't forget. I'll never give you that chance to do it to me twice. That's not how God treated you. Because here's what this means right here. God loved him with his compassion he, 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 he was moved to send Jesus, which is his mercy. But when it says he released him, it is actually a financial term. And this is what it means. God put this guy back into a position to borrow money again if he wanted to. I, it was much, but I'm going to come over here. Give me a better reaction. Even just smile at me, right? Just, just don't close your eyes and go. Just, just, when we say, I'll forgive, but I won't forget... 
That's not what God did for you. According to the scripture, what God did for us is he had mercy on you. He sent Jesus to, to take your place because your sin had to be dealt with. But God, not only, not only does he forgive you, he forgets and puts you back in a situation where you're restored. And what this means is it's, it's the Bible telling us that when God is done forgiving us, it's not just that he forgives us, but he'll never give us a second chance to do it again. When God restores you, he puts you back in a position that if you, if you wanted to do it again, you could do it again, and he'd forgive you again. Yeah, and if you, and so when we, if we just, oh, that's neat, you don't get what, it, it's not changing your heart. What, the, to listen to a message should not make you a smarter person, it should also make you a more compassionate and changed person. The power of the gospel should not just make you better at understanding theology, the power of the gospel should change your life. You shouldn't just be able to tell me what mercy is by definition, you should be able to go out and extend mercy to a person who needs it. That's what the power of the gospel does. And if it's not changing us, then folks, here's what we're doing. We're becoming religious. You, you can become very religious and you can have all the right answers. The Pharisees in the Bible that always fought with Jesus, they had all the answers. They memorized all the scriptures. And Jesus actually said this too to the very Pharisees. He said, you study the scriptures because in them you think that you find life and you won't come to me that the scriptures testify about. And so when we become smarter about the scriptures, but it doesn't change us, we're becoming religious. And how about this? Religious people can be some of the meanest people that ever lived on this planet. Ugh. We should not become mean. If our gospel just makes us mean, we got the wrong gospel. Thank you for that. Right? Yeah. I, okay. 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 So let, let me finish. I, I'm preaching without finishing my story. All right. So the man begged. I will pay back everything. His master had compassion on him, forgave him, released him, put him back in the situation to, to where he was before it all started. Look at this. When that servant went out, he leaves. He found one of his fellow servants who owed him, and look at the amount, 100 denarii. So remember, there's a comparison. One is, is 10,000 talents, and then he's been forgiven that huge amount, and then he goes out, and there's a guy that owes him 100 denarii. A denarii is, is simply one day salary. That's it. So the guy owes him 100 days salary, but compared to what he owed, it's not even to be touched, right? And look at this guy's reaction. He grabbed him, began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe me. His fellow servant fell down, begged him, and used the exact same words, have patience with me, and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay his debt. When his fellow servants saw what, hit, what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and recounted all of this to their master, the king who forgave the guy. Then the master summoned him back and declared, You wicked servant, I forgave all your debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in his anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured. Until he should repay all that he owed. And remember, he's never going to be able to repay it. That is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. How many of you think everybody felt good at the end of that message right there? <laughs> that is not like uh, seeker-sensitive preaching. That is not like, hey, let me make you feel good about where you... This is Jesus confronting people with, here's how God's going to treat you if you do this to people. 
And we tend to ignore the parts of the gospel that we don't like or that we can't explain, and it's in there over and over and over again. I found it at least four different places in the New Testament today of Jesus saying, this is what you're going to bring on yourself if you don't live your life this way. And that's, that's, I know that that is strict and that is harsh. It's not put as a warning of this is going to happen to you. It's put in there of, folks, don't do this. If grace and mercy has been given to you and you've experienced it, then don't go out and act the opposite. Act like people who have received it. Act like you, you get it. Okay, so the first one just is the benefit of being able to see. To see. When God opens your eyes to your need, you're able to see. Isn't it funny? Until God opens your eyes spiritually, you can hear a million messages. You can listen to thousands of songs. You can read book after book. But unless God opens your eyes spiritually to see, none of those things open. God, the Holy Spirit has to open your eyes. And when you see, it changes your life, doesn't it? And I wonder how many people in this room right now they hear me talking, but because your eyes aren't open, it just, it's, what do you mean by that, pastor? And for those of you who have had your eyes open spiritually to see your great need before God, it goes right to, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And that's the difference between being religious and actually being a follower of Christ, is that your eyes have been opened and you see your great need before God. And when you see it, you can ask God to be merciful. And not only is he merciful to you, but he's restorative to you. And so if you live that place and you've had that happen, now you have the chance to go into the world and be that person to other people. The power of the gospel is not getting somebody to come to church with you. It's not throwing a book at someone. It's not picketing either. It's not making laws to make them obey. The power of the gospel is when it changes a person's heart. When God writes his laws on their heart, you don't have to come up with any other law to restrict a person. What we miss today, we, we have substituted politics for open eyes. And the church has moved more in the idea of let, let's pick up a sword. Jesus said, pick up your cross. This is the way to live your life, man. So, so there's, a, there's a terminology in our culture today. And if you're my age, you may have never heard this. Uh, they call it being woke, W-O-K-E. And here's what it stands for. Politically, it's put in the idea that uh, people in our demographic, for the most part, are not woke. <laughs> You're not woke is what being told. Where does it come from, though? Listen to this. It comes from uh, people that led the civil rights movement in the 60s using, many of them were preachers. And, and man, like Martin Luther King, that guy could flat out preach. He was a preacher, man. An anointing on his life to preach. And so, so Martin Luther King, they would use that term to be woke. It was a spiritual analogy to have your eyes open so that you're awake spiritually. Now they've taken it and transposed it to a political thing. You need to be woke politically. The truth of the matter is you need to be woke spiritually. And so we, we go to a church and we think because, that church, because the pastor gets up there and sweats and goes for it. Then everything's good. But if you're not woke, all my yelling won't wake you up. It's something that the Holy Spirit has to do. The benefit of, of God's mercy is that it can wait. We can see. Suddenly we see. I once was blind, but now I see. What do you think that means? What do you think it means? 
Here's a person from the 1800s coming with this analogy of being woke. I walked through life and I was blind to it. I just simply couldn't hear it. I couldn't see it. I couldn't read it. It didn't make sense. But when God opened my eyes, I once was blind, but now I see. How many of you see now? Yeah, me too. And there were times I, I just didn't see. Now we see. I, I wrote these two things in my notes. Maybe they'll make sense to you. Part of the ability to be able to forgive someone comes from seeing your own need for mercy. If you don't see your need for mercy, you'll never see someone else's need for mercy. But this is even more important. Listen to this. Part of the ability to forgive comes from experiencing forgiveness. If all you have is a definition of what it means to be forgiven, but not an experience of being forgiven, then you don't have the ability to forgive someone. That's what it means to be woke. All right, I'm going to run out of time and just preach on this first one. So here's the second one. Let me talk about the trouble with justice real quick. Justice is a wonderful thing. Uh, justice is necessary. We all, we, we all like to see justice applied when it's, when it's right. Part of the reason God created the institution of government, literally from the Bible, part of the reason that government exists is in order to make sure that justice happens in a society. And when a government doesn't do its job, it's bad for the people. So it, it's, it is a biblical understanding that part of the reason a government exists is to make sure that justice happens for people. Listen to this real quickly, right? We take justice, though, when we don't get mercy, justice becomes something we want for someone else, but not for ourselves. You, oh, you deserve this. Me, I, I need a break. Uh, you, you got a problem. Me, people did stuff to me that made me this way. And so I need you to have mercy on me. So the problem with justice is that we, we often think things like, I didn't get what I deserved. Can I just say this to you and, and maybe, maybe you could just receive this real quickly. You need to be thankful every morning you wake up that you did not get what you deserved. Yes. <laughs> Literally. You need to wake up every morning and be grateful to God that you didn't get what you deserved. Because according to, to what the Bible says spiritually, if you were to be paid back what you deserved, then God would have to judge your life. And here, here's the, the wonderful, wonderful part. By the way, God did judge it, but he put Jesus in your place to take the punishment. <laughs> the common story that's used today, you know, in a, in a courtroom, it'll show like uh, someone that's done some heinous, brutal crime. And I'm not defending that. I don't, not at all. Just hear my side of the message. But they'll show a courtroom scene like uh, 2020 will do this or one of those news shows. And they'll show a courtroom scene where some brutal crime happened. And then the people whom it happened to uh, or the family of the person that it happened to, they'll speak to the person who committed the crime. And they'll say something like, uh, you know, I just want you to know that we forgive you and that we release you. And that's really, really powerful. But then a moment later, when the sentence is pronounced, those people rejoice. We got justice in it. And I get it, and I understand it, but I'm just saying to you, we take justice and we don't understand. We want it for someone else that did something, but we sure don't want it for us when we do something. You hear what I'm saying? Yes. And so we misapply the idea of justice that, yeah, we like justice, and justice is good, and justice is necessary, but we're always glad when we don't get what we deserved. 
And I won't spend a lot of time messing with that one. I know that's, that's one that's hard to swallow. So let me do the third one, the joy of freedom. And let me tell you, really, this is why you want to forgive people, because it brings freedom to you, not to them, to you. Um, I'll relate it to a story, and, and it's a little bit funny, and you're going to like go, you really did that? Um, I did do this. Uh, I, was, I was in my 20s when I did this, and, and a young father, um, maybe I'd do the same thing today, I don't know, but um, in, in, uh, in, in 92, we moved back from um, Lexington, Kentucky. I was pastoring in Lexington as a youth pastor, and we moved back to Colorado. This is where uh, Chris is from, and I grew up uh, most of my life here. And so coming back to Colorado was, was our goal. After Bible college and after pastoring in a, in a couple of different places, we wanted to come back to Colorado. And there was a church in northern Colorado that opened up, and the opportunity for us to go there, they hired us, and uh, it was in 92. And we had, uh, at that point, three children, so Ames, Brent, and Kate. And we thought our family was complete. We were, we were happy with the three. We were busy with the three. Um, everything was good. And I was working on staff with another guy who was about in the same place uh, that I was uh, with his family. And his wife told him, his name was Kurt. She told him, she said, Kurt, uh, you need to make sure that we don't have any more children. Do I need to say more? Or can you understand what I'm, what I'm saying? Okay. So he said to me, uh, John, what are you guys going to do? And I said, uh, we, we feel the same way that three... Three is enough. So we both made an appointment so that it would be uh, permanent. And uh, the night before the appointment, he calls me and, you know, he's like, oh, I don't feel good. I, I you know, I don't, I don't think I'm going to be able to go, right? So he's chickening out. And so uh, I thought, well, um, yeah, I don't think I feel good either. And so <laughs> some of you already know how this story ends. Um, so, um, you know, I told Chris, I, I will make this appointment and I will keep this, but I, I just need a little more time. This threw me for a loop right here. And so before I could get to the doctor, she got pregnant. And so now we're going to have four, and three months into the pregnancy, it turns out to be five. It's one of those stories. And so she's big and pregnant, and we moved from Lexington to Colorado right before she has the babies. And... Um, we get up to, to Fort Collins, Loveland, and um, you know our family goes from five of us to seven of us overnight, and it was, you know, it, it was such a busy, busy time because we had them, you know, stretching in age suddenly from ten down to to two infants, and it was just our family was overrun. There's just no way to say it. So I go into a brand new job that's very demanding. We have these twins. We've got the other three. We're both taxed to the hilt. Chris, um, you know, I was fortunate in that she was willing to stay home with our children and watch them and, and care for them and raise them that way while I'm over here working. And I know that for many of you, you don't get that choice. And I, I'm just telling I was fortunate to be able to do that. And every time that I thought, you know, she's got the better end of the deal, uh, I would just watch them for a couple of hours. <laughs> And always be like, man, you got the worst end of the deal for sure. Uh, there was a woman's retreat right when the twins had turned, it was like nine or ten months. And um, she, the, the pastor had said, hey, I want all of the staff uh, wives to go on this women's retreat. And I, I had never watched all five of them overnight by myself. 
And I, I was just like, I, we got to get out of this. There's just... <laughs> and, you know, she, <laughs> on one hand, she was pr- not problem. She was very relieved to have the opportunity to go do it. But on the other hand, she was worried, you know, what will happen to my children um, <laughs> if I leave them with him. Uh, and she was going to be gone for two nights. So we get everything set up. And we didn't have a car that was big enough for all of us to ride in at that point. We had a Honda Civic um, and, a, and another five-passenger car, and suddenly we have the need for seven. So th- that's relevant to the story for this. Chris goes with one of the cars, and I'm left, and I can't get everybody in the car, and this is before cell phones, and we're new in the city, and we're trying to figure it all out. She goes away, and um, I'm trying to care for all five of them. I'd actually taken the weekend off so that I could... I could spend the time with them and, and do this right. And somewhere um, on the last day, uh, with about six or seven hours for, for her to get home, I run out of diapers. And I can't get everybody in the car to go to the store, and I can't call anybody. So what am I going to do? So I've got the three bigger ones running all over the place, and then i got the two little infants who can crawl. And if you have twins, anybody in this room... Twins encourage each other to do naughty things. <laughs> they learn to climb and they learn to, and like one challenges the other and it just becomes this, this thing. So in order to corral them, I took all of the chairs. I, I got my living room and I create, I took our couches and all of the chairs and I created this great big pin <laughs> where they couldn't get out. And I took every towel and sheet that we had and I laid it on the ground and I put the naked twins in the middle of it and I just thought, okay, you know, what's going to happen is going to happen. <laughs> and when Chris comes home, two things. First, you'll realize that you, I cannot leave him alone with these children, <laughs> and this will never happen again. And then, um, you know, maybe she'll also realize, you know, hey, he, he tried his best. So I, I've got him in this corral thing, right? And it, it just goes from bad to worse. All the stuff is happening and they're trying to get out and I'm trying to put them back in and I can't turn, I can't even go to the bathroom. I mean, I'm literally stuck trying to tend to these two wild twins and three others that are, they're using it as an opportunity to do everything wrong. They And I can't go get them. I've got to, so I try to run over here and one of them's gone. So I run back over here and then the other, and it was just, I'm, I'm just like, if she comes home, I promise I'll never say anything ugly to her again. I will. God just... And so I, I go through this, and it just it wore me out. Man, it taxed me. I didn't have the ability to do this. I just was like, God, I, I, what am I going to do? Now, okay, that's funny, and it's, it's pathetic, and it's all those things. But let me connect it to something real quick. She gets back and brings order to our lives and relieves me, and I can go back to normal when you don't forgive someone and you begin to nurse and hold that thing, you're creating this little pin that's nothing more than a mess and it requires all of your time to pay attention to it. You can't turn your back on it. You can't go away because as soon as you do, something happens. You have to run back over to it. And it takes all of your energy and it takes all of your time and it's a filthy mess and you're embarrassed and what you really want is for someone to come in and relieve you. And this is what mercy does in our life. Is instead of having to sit here and take care of this mess and you have time for nothing else, 
Jesus steps into the situation and says, you want to be relieved? Let this go. Forgive this person. Stop this thing. And if you could see what unforgiveness is really doing to your time and to your spirit and to your mind and to your strength, if you could really see what it's costing you, if you could get a look at the mess that it's making and you're guarding the mess, if you would really understand that the reason you're not enjoying your life is because you can't go do the things that are fun, you're stuck having to nurse this thing right here and make sure that it doesn't get out of control. And you know what you really need? Is to let that thing go. You need God to step in and take the situation from you and allow you to be free. And when you forgive someone, it's not about letting them go as much as it lets you go. It lets you go. And you get to make the choice right now. And you know, people that struggle with unforgiveness and bitterness, when they hear someone, especially a spiritual authority, tell them, let it go, that bitterness can make you angry at the person telling you to let it go. Because you'll say, if you knew, you wouldn't say it that way. Maybe I don't know your situation, but you don't know mine either. And the bottom line is this, God knows what it does to us, and that's why he tells us what has been forgiven for you is far more than what someone's done to you. And if you could ever actually be woke where you saw your own spiritual depravity before God, it would allow you then to let other people go. And when you can't let someone go, it's because you're not seeing well this way. Yeah. And whether you say amen to that or not, it's true. Because I'll say it one more time. The greatest indication of whether you actually understand grace and mercy is your ability to give grace and mercy. There's an old song we used to sing, and the lyrics went like this. I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon the cross. Jay is going to close with that song right there. It's just a simple song. There's not a lot to it. As we sing it, maybe it's an opportunity for you to do business when it comes to grace and mercy. Listen to what I'm going to say, and I'm done. Forgiving somebody is comprised of two things. A, it's an act of grace. When you recognize what God has done for you, if you could really see it, then it puts a perspective of how you can forgive someone. So forgiving someone first is an act of grace this way. God doing something for you, you recognizing it so that you now have uh, an ability to know what forgiveness is. And then the second thing that forgiveness is comprised of, it's an act of the will. You don't wait until you feel like forgiving somebody because you'll never feel like forgiving somebody. You make a decision to forgive somebody. And then this is what's interesting too, Steve, that once you forgive somebody, it's never done in one moment because if you're like me, you can forgive them and make a choice, but then the enemy the next day will bring it right back to you and the chance to be offended again. And Jesus said this, it's impossible for offenses not to come. But what you do with the offense is your choice. You do get to choose. You do not have to nurse that thing and make that thing a part of your life. You can let it go. And I know there's a lot with that. And I know what I'm saying right now is a big enchilada. But asking the Lord to help you, God, let me see what you've done for me, an act of grace. 
so that I can then make a decision to forgive someone else. And the reason you do it is not for their sake as much as it's for your sake. Your sake. And you get to choose what you want to do with that. And there's no card to sign or proof that we'll ask for. It's just business between you and God right now. But as we take this moment, sing this song, maybe it's a place for you to say to the Lord, let me see. Open my eyes. Let me understand what you've done for me. And then God, help me. And maybe if the Holy Spirit brings someone to your mind right now, listen to what I'm saying. If the Holy Spirit brings someone to your mind right now, don't just dismiss that out of your hand and just take a moment and ask the Lord, why am I thinking about that person or that situation? And maybe there's something there that God wants you to release to him. You don't have to be fake. You can even say to God, I don't feel this way. But you can say, because you asked me to do it and because you've done it for me, I want you to work this in me. That's legit. You don't need to be a phony. You can actually say to God, I'm having trouble with this and I don't feel this way, but because you've done this for me, I want to be like you. That's what he asks us. So Father, take this moment in time that we have. And for those that have been for so long giving their time and attention to a mess, and that mess just grows day by day, and it keeps you busy doing something that you were not put on this earth to do. The life you want to live is away from that thing. And so God comes to us and says, here it is. I'll give you the chance to choose life. You've got to make a choice. And when we sing this song right now, ask the Holy Spirit and then allow him to speak to your heart. Stand to your feet, if you will, please.